Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Chelsea Clinton, and this is In Fact, a podcast about why public health matters, even when we're not in a pandemic. We know that misogyny and sexism affect the way women are treated every day. But the problem is even bigger and more systemic than it might seem. As we'll hear today, sexism is baked into everything from how cars are tested for safety to the way women, and especially women of color, are treated by doctors and hospitals. And the results can be deadly. We don't often talk about sexism as a public health crisis, but that's exactly what it is. Later, I'll be talking with Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois, who has made maternal health one of her top priorities. But first, I'm delighted to be speaking with Caroline Criado Perez. Caroline is a writer and advocate whose best-selling book, 
Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, gets the many mind-boggling ways that sexism shapes the world around us and puts women at risk. As you're about to hear, I was recovering from strep throat when we spoke, so my voice was a little hoarse during our conversation. Thank you for being here and and having this conversation with me, even with my raspy voice. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. So I know your expertise is on data and gender, and Mm -hmm. I just thought maybe we could start with you explaining what that means and what you do. What I really work on is what is called the gender data gap. So like the gender pay gap, but in data. And basically what that means is that the vast majority of information that we've collected globally and continue to collect everything from transport data to economic data to medical data has been collected almost exclusively on men, both male bodies and typical male lifestyle patterns. And that means that the vast majority of pretty much everything you come across in the world has been designed to work better for men. So I I work on the gender data gap and also both its causes and consequences. And I'm particularly interested in its causes, actually, because the cause I've identified is one that I identified in myself, first of all, which is our tendency to, when we think of a human being, to think of a man and how subconscious that is that we don't notice that we're doing it. And so it ends up with ridiculous situations like using a car crash test dummy based around the average male body and thinking that is a good fit for the average human body. For everyone, yeah. Right. And so I find this bias fascinating because it's not malicious, it's not deliberate. It's just something we don't even notice that we're doing. And yet it has these huge ramifications. And Caroline, how did you first notice that in yourself? You said you first got interested in this when you realized that you had this default to human equals male instead of human equals, well, all of us. I discovered it in myself when I was in my mid-20s. I went to university as a mature student. And prior to this point, actually, I'd been pretty anti-feminist. I instinctively felt that it wasn't for me and that it was just kind of embarrassing, that it was painting women as victims and I didn't like it. And I had to read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. I was studying English language and literature. And the author of the book, Debbie Cameron, referred to this issue with generic masculine in grammar. So in English, that would be he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind, using the male form as the gender neutral form. And I think like a lot of people, I'd heard about this before and just dismissed it as just incredibly stupid and facile. Who cares what pronoun you use? Everyone knows it's gender neutral. But then she pointed to studies that show that actually when people read or hear these words, they picture a man. And that just completely blew my mind for two reasons. One, that I realized I was doing that. But also, I just thought, how have I never noticed this before? You know, it's just staggering to me that despite having heard these conversations about generic masculine excluding women, it had never been something that I'd noticed in myself that I was picturing men. And then gradually I started realizing how it went much further than that. And actually it was when I was picturing anyone, lawyer, doctor, professor, writer, I was just always picturing men. And it has to be said, actually, I was picturing white men. That was my standard default for what a human looks like as a white man. And I just found that incredible. And so I think because that's the way I came into feminism, I was really primed to notice it when it cropped up in other areas. So the next thing that I studied was behavioral economics and feminist economics. And economics is just riddled with the default male, the way that we count GDP 
is set up to wholly exclude the unpaid work that mainly women do that props up the formal economy, for example. But we just don't count it. And as a result of not counting it, we undervalue it. And then we design economies and allocate resources in a totally skewed way to the detriment of everyone, actually. So I was just noticing all of these examples building up and starting to see that this was just entirely systemic and entirely hidden because all of these things are presented as gender neutral. And then eventually I came across the fact that it appears in the medical profession as well. So it first came across my attention when I was researching my first book, actually. And I came across this paper talking about female heart attack symptoms. And I just thought, wait, what? (laughs) Isn't a heart attack pain in your left chest and down your left arm? And yeah, it is for men and it can be for women. But actually, a lot of women don't experience that. A lot of women present very differently. Exactly. Women tend to present more with what feels like indigestion, breathlessness, fatigue, nausea. And women aren't recognizing that they're having a heart attack because we have this very strong public health message that it's pain in the chest down your left arm. But even more shocking to me was that doctors are misdiagnosing women as well because we're not necessarily training all doctors. You know, it's not part of the curriculum to teach a whole host of different symptoms for various diseases that do exist. And it's not just heart disease. And so discovering that you had this default male, even in medicine, even in medicine, it was just so, so shocking. It was so shocking. And at that point, I just thought, I I have to write about this. This is just too big. This is too huge. And so can you just share some other examples that you probably found equally shocking of the ways in which medicine, public health, and science have effectively excluded women? You know, (laughs) I could go on all day giving you examples that are really shocking. I think for me, one of the things that was most frustrating was the excuse that I heard time and time again for why women and female animals and female cells, because it's not just in humans, were excluded from research. And and Caroline, I think that's an important point, right? Like that for anyone listening to us who also may not know that the majority of animal studies that are the precursor to human trials you know, have historically been done on male mice and other male animals. So the gender bias starts from the beginning of a research design and experimentation. Yeah. But Chelsea, even in cells, like, we test on male cells. And that's just staggering because one of the main excuses is, well, there's two main excuses. One is, oh, women don't want to participate in research. And the other is... Do people actually say that to you? Yeah, yeah, that women, uh, you know, it's just too difficult to recruit women. Interestingly, not when it comes to cosmetic research, there women dominate. That is the one area I found that actually apparently you can find women to take part in trials. But yeah, the big excuse is it's really difficult to recruit women. And also that female bodies are too complicated. And basically what they mean by that is they're too hormonal. Congratulations us. Yeah. (laughs) Got this menstrual cycle. Nobody knows what's going on there. Better not look into that box because who knows what you might find. And so that is why they have historically excluded females and continue to exclude females. But as you start going from humans, you're like, right, you've got the sort of women. Women are actually more busy. They have less leisure time because they're doing a lot of unpaid care work. So There are ways around that, of designing the times that you do it, of making the centers more accessible so it's easier for women to get to. But that is a legitimate issue. 
But then you start looking at mice and well, like mice don't have any caregiving responsibilities. So that excuse goes out the window, but they've still got, you know, these pesky hormonal bodies. But then you look at cells, right? Cells do not have a menstrual cycle and they definitely don't have caregiving responsibilities. And yet still we are using male cells. And let me give you an example of why this matters. There was a really fascinating study done, I believe in 2016, that, that I, I reported on in Invisible Women, where they exposed male and female cells to estrogen and then exposed them to a virus. It was the flu virus in this case. And what they found was that the male cells didn't respond to the estrogen and they weren't able to fight off the virus. But the female cells were able to use the estrogen to fight off this virus. Now, if you think about the fact that the vast majority of cell stage research is done in male cells, it just blows your mind to think of how many medications, treatments that could have worked for women have we missed out on because we excluded them at the cell trial stage. And one of the things we know about COVID is that women have been more likely to survive it than men. But crucially, we don't really understand the mechanisms behind it, which has seriously and definitely hampered our ability to fight it. When I wrote the book, I started from the position of this is very bad for women. But now we see from this pandemic, actually, it's not just bad for women. You know, it hampers our understanding of humans overall and the human body and treatments that could work. And of course, on the other side, when you think about vaccines and the fact that women are, represent the vast majority of those who've suffered side effects, including the more serious anaphylactic reactions, but we didn't take into account the menstrual cycle when it came to vaccine research. We didn't investigate sex-specific dosages, even though we have known for a really long time, actually, that women may require lower dosages, both not just because of the size, but also because of the far more active female immune system. What do you see, if you see any, points of progress here or, or not yet? There has been progress. I mean, that cell study that I referred to that is progress. That was led by this amazing woman called Sabra Klein, who has done a lot of this kind of research. And actually, a lot of this research is being led by women. It's a really interesting study that found that actually the gender makeup of the researchers does actually make a difference to whether or not they do sex analysis and whether or not they sex disaggregate their data. And surprise, if you have a female lead researcher, you're much more likely to find that the research has done this sex analysis that is so important. On the other hand, I have never seen so much media coverage of this as an issue. From looking at the impact of lockdowns on domestic violence to reporting the fact that the vaccine hasn't been researched in pregnancy to reporting about side effects, differential side effects between men and women. That's been a huge, huge difference. If you look back at Ebola and Zika actually, both of which had very, very obvious sex differential impacts. Women were more likely to die during the Ebola epidemic, not because they were more susceptible, but because of their caregiving roles. And of course, in Zika, it particularly affected pregnancy and, and fetal development. But only 1% of published studies on Zika and Ebola looked at sex or gender. And yet here for COVID, that's not been what I've witnessed at all. I've never seen such huge coverage of these issues. And I think that is huge. I really think that's huge. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. 
With our flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now wherever you listen. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. You spoke earlier about how during COVID you've seen more coverage than ever before of how women have been affected by the disease, been affected by treatments for the disease. Are there other ways that you've seen the pandemic affect women? And even more, have you seen the gender data gap positively or negatively affected 
by the pandemic? I wouldn't say I was surprised by the differential economic impact, but from the perspective of gender data gap, I think it has been positive to see A, this being reported in a way that I've never seen before. I've never seen so much awareness of how crucial the care industry is. And I say industry, but I'm including, of course, unpaid care work. But how things come to a grinding halt when there's no one there to take care of the kids and how crucial it is to have childcare provided if you want women to engage in paid labor. And of course, countries do need women to engage in paid labor. And so seeing those conversations happen has been kind of amazing. But then on the other hand, I felt hopeful at the beginning of, well, the earlier stages of the pandemic, that perhaps this was going to signal a shift. But then, you know, if you look at several types of economic recovery plans, it just feels like we're falling back on old ways of doing things without having learned the lessons of the pandemic, which is actually care and health are really important and maybe we should pay them better. So for example, in the UK, we had our recovery plan in the summer of 2020. And then, of course, we had another wave and, and another lockdown. But the slogan for that recovery was build back better. And basically, it was all focused on construction. Literally build back better. Literally build back better. And what do we know about construction? Well, we know that construction is heavily male dominated. And what do we know about the economic fallout of COVID? Well, we know that it's been heavily dominated by women, right? Women are the ones who are much more likely to have lost their jobs, to have had to go part-time, both because of the types of jobs that women are more likely to be working in. And again, this has been doubly or triply so for women of color. And yet there has been little to no recognition of that in terms of the recovery. And by the way, this is not a, a new problem. There has been research looking at the US, various European countries, finding that if you invest in the care industry as opposed to the construction industry, you will create as many jobs for men, but far more jobs for women, and you'll get as good a return, if not better, on GDP. So there's the economic argument for investing in the care industry was already there. Throw in COVID and suddenly how important the care industry has become. And it makes zero economic sense to immediately fall back on jobs for the boys in construction. And yet that's what we end up doing. And how much of that do you think has to do with inertia? And how much of that do you think has to do with who's in power, specifically largely men, white men? And how much of that do you think has to do with construction is more visible and often care is more invisible, even though it's clearly a part of, if not all of, most of our lives? It definitely will also have something to do with who's in power. There is very good research on this going back decades, showing that the more women you have in a country's parliament, the more money gets spent, for example, on education, or the more time gets spent discussing issues that affect women, right? It, it's very clear that women have a different set of priorities to men, and therefore it makes sense to have a balance of people in power so that the balance of citizens is adequately represented. So that will be part of it. But I think also, and this is probably the hardest one to address, is inertia, the status quo bias. We don't like change. We do like doing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> even when we know it doesn't work. It's infuriating. Caroline, we've talked a lot about medicine and science from a research perspective. I wonder, though, if you could share other areas where you've seen the gender data gap 
Well, I'll start with the crash test dummies because I feel like that one's almost the most blatant example because it's like a literal man, <laughs> right? So historically, the only car crash test dummy that was used, and it's still the most commonly used car crash test dummy in tests, was based on the body of an average American male. And that body is obviously too large and too heavy to represent the average female of any country. But it's more than that. Women aren't just small men, essentially. And so they have created a very, very scaled down male dummy, which they call a female dummy. But it doesn't represent differences, for example, in spinal flexibility. It doesn't represent differences in muscle mass distribution. So, for example, men tend to carry more muscle on their shoulders and their necks than women. It doesn't represent pelvic differences, all of which are very important when you're coming to preventing injuries in a crash. Seatbelts, for example, as well, haven't been designed to accommodate breast tissue. We haven't designed a seatbelt that is safe for pregnancy. And the result of all of this is that women, if they get into a car crash, are 47% more likely to be seriously injured than a man in the same car crash and 17% more likely to die. Essentially, that comes down to not having tested it on a body that represents the female body. But you will find some people saying, oh, well, maybe the female body just is, I don't know, naturally weaker or something, then that's why they die. But there's a really interesting example if you look at whiplash prevention systems. And there are two main types which were introduced in the past couple of decades. And one of them reduced whiplash frequency for men, who, by the way, were less likely to suffer from whiplash than women anyway, reduced it for men, but actually increased it for women. Whereas the other most common whiplash prevention system, which was used in Volvo and Toyota, I believe, decreased it for both men and women. So there are clearly design issues going on here that if you account for the female body, you can create a safer car for both men and women. But if you don't count for the female body, you can end up creating a safer car for men that ends up being more dangerous for women. Caroline, that's just shocking to me. I, I know. <laughs> Most people don't know that this is a problem. Well, I didn't know this was a problem. And I think I'm like a pretty well-educated <laughs> person and consumer. So are there other kind of equally egregious examples? I don't want to depress you, but yes, most things. <laughs> so uh, one example I came across recently that made me pretty infuriated. Um, I'm a runner. and I'm a runner. You buy women's running shoes, right? I do buy women's running shoes. Yeah, you don't. You don't buy women's running shoes. You buy scaled down men's running shoes. And that is why women are more likely to suffer from injuries because the vast majority of shoes are designed around the mold of a male foot. But actually women's feet aren't just small men's feet. So women have narrower heels in proportion to their toe box. And so if you have a shoe that is designed around a male last, what women find is if it fits their heels, it's too narrow on their toes and vice versa, if it fits their toes, it's too wide on their heels. There are, however, some companies that are actually designing around a female, but the vast majority say that they are women's shoes and they're actually just scaled down men's shoes. And the the more you look around, the more you sort of, I, I, it's going to start to drive you crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'll start looking at things and going, does this not work for me because I'm a woman? Okay. So crash test dummies, running shoes. What about our built environment? and where we spend time, our, our homes, our office buildings, our parks. Two of my favorite examples. One of them is quite quick to tell. 
If you've ever worked in an office, you may well have noticed that in the summer, the men are all wandering around in their shirts and the women are snuggling under blankets because they're freezing. And there's a very good reason for that. The formula used to determine office temperature was based around, you'll never guess. (laughs) The average American male. (laughs) Yes. The metabolic (laughs) resting rate of an average 40-year-old man. And uh, it turns out that women's metabolic resting rate is lower. And so the average office is about five degrees too cold for women. And the other one actually is also, it's also about being cold, specifically when it's snowing. And this is just such a fascinating example, I think, because I'm going to talk to you about snow clearing. And the idea that snow clearing could be sexist just sounds so ridiculous. But as soon as you start thinking about it, you sort of realize, yeah, okay, that actually does make sense. So let me make the case for you. It came about in Sweden in a town called Karlskoga. And they were doing a gender audit of all their policies, which, you know, is so Swedish. We all just need to move to Sweden. But anyway, they're doing a gender audit of all their policies. And someone actually made a joke about the snow clearing and were like, oh, we should check the snow clearing because they'll never be able to find anything wrong with that. But actually they did. They were clearing the roads in an order that privileged male typical travel over typical female travel. So this is something that holds around the world. Men and women tend to travel differently. So men are much more likely to drive women are more likely to use public transport. That's partly um, like women are more likely to be poorer than men. But also if a household has a car, men tend to dominate access to it. And men also have a much simpler travel pattern of basically commuting in and out of work, A to B. Women, because they are usually combining unpaid work with paid work, have a much more complicated type of travel, which is lots of short interconnected trips. And that's called trip chaining. And that's things like you dropping the kids off at school before you go into work, maybe picking up some groceries on the way home, dropping in on an elderly relative, they're dotting around the place. This sounds very familiar. I'm sure it does. (laughs) And so women, as a result, basically are more likely to be walking and they're more likely to be using local roads, whereas men are more likely to be using main roads. And the way that the town council in Karlskoga had always cleared their roads was clearing the main thoroughfares first and then the sidewalks and the local roads. So they decided, well, let's switch it around. It's easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than it is to push a buggy or to walk. Not only did they find that it didn't cost them any more money, it actually saved them money off their healthcare bill. And the reason for that is that, yes, it is harder to push a buggy or walk through three inches of snow the majority of single person accidents during the winter months were pedestrians. And the majority of those pedestrians were women. And the entire cost of those injuries was three times the winter road maintenance. So just this little shift in the schedule by paying attention to how men and women travel around the city saved them this huge bunch of money. On the question of gender audits, since you mentioned Sweden was conducting a gender audit, are other countries taking a similarly clear-eyed view to really determine where there are biases against women effectively? Really interestingly, and this is on my list to look into, Hawaii came up with a feminist economics recovery plan from covid Which seems to have quite broad-based support, thankfully, from women and men. Right. It should, because it just makes sense. Like, it's called feminist economics, but it's actually economics that accounts for how people actually live their lives. Like, that's the less catchy title. 
Right. Which is good for everyone. What would you say maybe to your younger self or to people today who might be cynical and think like, why does this matter? If we invest enough money in enough places, all boats will rise. What do you say to people who have that perspective to help them understand, no, actually, we really need to be investing in places where women, and particularly Black and brown women, have been historically excluded because that's good for you too? I turn the question on its head and say, why wouldn't you want to collect all the data before deciding where to invest your resources? It just doesn't make sense that we're not collecting all the information, that we're only collecting half of the information and making decisions based on that. That It's just common sense, isn't it? You want to have all the information at your disposal, and then you make your decision. And at the moment, we are consistently making decisions based on only half of the information that we need. And therefore, we're making bad decisions. We're making expensive decisions. We're wasting money. So essentially, I would just challenge someone to defend the position that it's better to make decisions without all the information at your disposal. Well, I have something new to work on. Um, (laughs) Caroline, thank you so much for all of your time. I'm hugely grateful. Thank you very much for having me. Caroline's book is Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. I was so inspired by Lauren Underwood's campaign for Congress back in 2018. She's a registered nurse who has worked in public health policy, and she beat an incumbent to become the first woman and first person of color to serve her district in Illinois. She's also the youngest black woman ever to serve in the United States House of Representatives. After taking office, she co-founded the Black Maternal Health Caucus, which is working to raise awareness about and solve the crisis of black women's maternal mortality in America. I was thrilled and honored to speak with Congresswoman Underwood. So thank you, Congresswoman Underwood, who assured me that I not only can, but should call her Lauren, um, for uh, being here uh, with me today to talk about the real crisis that is sexism as a public health issue. Before we dive into that, I'd love if you could just share the story of your career in advancing healthcare, which started well before you came to Washington. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. I, in third grade, was diagnosed with a heart condition. And that is really what set me on a course of interest in healthcare and improving the health and well-being of my community. I ended up picking nursing as my career path. And during my second semester of freshman year, I took a course that changed my life, policy and politics of nursing and healthcare. And I discovered this whole field of health policy and was really fascinated by the idea that we could change some laws and some policies and improve the health and well-being of people. We could end disparities just by making some different policy choices. And so I set on this path that took me to the Department of Health and Human Services, where as a career employee, I worked to implement the Affordable Care Act for four and a half years. (laughs) We love the ACA over here. I joined the Obama administration where I worked on public health emergencies and disasters. We did Ebola, we did Zika, we did the water crisis in Flint. And then I had this wild idea to run for Congress after my congressman made a promise during the time of Obamacare repeal, the spring of 2017, that he would only support a version of repeal that let people with pre-existing conditions keep their health care coverage. So here I am, a nurse who worked on the ACA with a pre-existing condition. I believed him. And then literally two weeks later, he broke his word, voted for the American Health Care Act, 
I got really upset and decided, you know what? It's on. I'm running. And I won. (laughs) And so now I'm here in Congress and I get to do this amazing work to improve health. And during the time of a pandemic, obviously, I think that my background and skill set have been a value add to our nation. We know the pandemic isn't the only public health crisis that we're confronting in our country. And we have long had a maternal mortality crisis in our country. One of the things my mom and I talk about today is that it is far more likely for women my age to die while giving birth than it was when my mom gave birth to me. And that reversal of progress and the burden of of pain and loss and grief has fallen most heavily on black and brown mothers and families in our country. And I know that the maternal mortality crisis, and especially the Black women maternal mortality crisis, has been a major focus of your work in Congress. Is that something that you expected to be a focus of your time in office? How did you come to connect to this issue so passionately? Are we doing now what we need to do to ensure that everyone is able to deliver a child safely, or are we not there yet? So when I was, I was in graduate school in 2009 at Johns Hopkins, and I had a great friend. Her name was Dr. Shalon Irving. She was a sociologist and gerontologist that wanted to get an MPH. And we connected and stayed in touch after graduation. And while I was finishing up my service in the Obama administration, she was preparing to deliver her first child in January of 2017. And she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl named Soleil. And then three weeks later, we lost her. So we were talking about a highly educated federal employee. She was a lieutenant commander in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps, had a doctorate, had insurance, had health care. She got all her prenatal care. She did everything right. And yet we lost her. And that experience was so shocking, horrifying, devastating for me because as a nurse, we learned that, you know, Black women were more likely to die of a pregnancy-related complication. In my clinical education, it was presented, oh, there's just something about Black women, which is not quite right, but... And also not really sciencey. No. And then I lost my friend. And then I made this major decision, right, to run for Congress. And so I knew that if I won my election, that this would be an issue that I wanted to tackle. Because the more and more that I learned about this problem, that this disparity has persisted my entire lifetime. I'm 34 years old, and we have not seen any kind of change or progress in this disparity where Black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications. And for every death, we have 70, seven zero near misses. And so when I think about all the things that we've tackled as a country, all the innovation and resources that we have leaned in and problems that we've solved, the idea that we would have this maternal health crisis that has just been allowed to flourish is something that I found unacceptable. And so when I was elected, I was elected and became the youngest Black woman to ever serve in Congress. And I knew that we had an incredible opportunity to save lives, and we decided to jump in. So I co-founded and co-chaired the Black Maternal Health Caucus with Congresswoman Alma Adams from North Carolina. And together, we drafted and introduced the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, a comprehensive set of 12 bills to um, end our nation's maternal mortality crisis. We introduced it in 2020 with then-Senator Kamala Harris. 
And we've reintroduced it this year with Senator Cory Booker. And we've already seen one of our Momnibus bills pass the House. And so we're really excited about the progress that we can make to save lives and this disparity. Do you think if this crisis affected men, just to be really blunt, there would have been the same apathy effectively in our public health discourse, in our lack of interventions that we've seen in the maternal mortality crisis? I absolutely think that we would have had more interventions, more solutions, and that the disparity certainly would have been narrowed if this was something impacting men only or the population at large, men and women together. We live in a society and, you know, receive our health care in a system that by and large views pregnancy as in many ways pathologic, that there's something wrong and it requires these aggressive interventions. But we're not necessarily seeing the kind of innovation and investment in pregnancy and delivery and postpartum care as we do in other areas of medicine. And so then when we see something go wrong, we're not getting the investment to really be precise in the data collection. We're not seeing the level of investment in trying to figure out the evidence-based solutions that work across geography, because there are solutions that are better in rural areas than in urban areas, right? There are solutions that work better for maybe tribal and indigenous communities than they do in suburban white communities. There are interventions that work regardless of what language you speak. But we don't have that kind of research being done to understand this issue. Or it's only more recently that that kind of research is being done and implemented at scale. I think a lot of people are surprised when we put forward the Momnibus and it was so big. Right. There are so many solutions and they weren't duplicative. Right. So we didn't even in the mommy bus, for example, we didn't even touch Medicaid, which we know is a major opportunity to save mom's lives because they are the number one payer <laughs> for births and deliveries in this country. But there are so many areas requiring intervention that have to happen in order to save lives because this problem is multifactorial. It's not just any one thing. And I would have thought over the years, we might have been able to tackle a few of those. We shouldn't have to put forward a 12-bill solution plus everything else related to Medicaid in order to really make a dent in this problem. And yet here we are. And I just want to say one other thing, Chelsea. You mentioned that this is a crisis that's gotten worse over time, and you're absolutely right. The United States leads the industrialized world and maternal mortality, and that is not an acceptable place to be. In my state of Illinois last year, Black women were six times more likely to die. The the new data just came out. And now Black women are three times more likely to die because white women started dying more. (laughs) And so the disparity narrowed, not because because health status improved, (laughs) it's because it got worse for everyone. We are moving in the wrong direction, and it's happening right in front of our faces. taking a quick break. Stay with us. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. 
If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Lauren, I want to go back to the importance of data collection. I imagine for people listening to us, they might be surprised to realize how little data we're collecting on expectant and new moms, given how here in the United States, the vast majority of births do occur in hospitals. And we know that Medicaid is the number one payer. And so I would think people listening would think, wait, hospitals aren't collecting data? Like Medicaid isn't collecting data? Like why isn't this happening? Okay, so what's going on is that for a death to be 
counted in most communities as a pregnancy-related complication, the cause of death needs to explicitly list the pregnancy or explicitly list something in the maternal health space. And so that is problematic because in our country and around the world, the metric to recognize maternal death is up to a full year postpartum. And so there are a variety of causes of death that a coroner may not explicitly link to that pregnancy on the death certificate. So we have a bill within the Momnibus, the Data to Save Moms Act, that Congresswoman Sharice Davids has introduced for us to make sure that we're cleaning up and standardizing this data collection and reporting. We're making it really easy and straightforward for local officials to capture this information and giving our federal partners at CDC more resources to make that data available sooner so that we can tackle this problem and be precise in our interventions. I think, Lauren, that's the important point. As much as more data and more specific data is generally a good priority and a good area of focus, it matters because it then enables the type of precise interventions that you were talking about earlier. So maybe you you could just talk about how you help explain to your colleagues or to your constituents that this is a big problem, but actually a problem that contains a multitude of smaller challenges within it. That's right. And so while I, I want to start out at the macro level, we call this the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, but everything is addressing disparities related to the broad coalition of race and ethnicity, because we know in certain communities, there actually isn't a disparity for Black moms. It might be Hispanic moms or API moms or Indigenous moms. I encourage people to not be turned off or dissuaded thinking that this is just a Black problem. The second thing that I think is really important is there's a lot of places where we've just started looking away and we can't look away. We can't turn away. So, for example, I introduced one of the bills about veteran moms. The VA is a federally run healthcare system. And this is a responsibility that we have when governing to make sure that our nation's heroes are not dying. <laughs> Because they want to have babies, right? This is something that we are responsible for. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, same type of problem. Just because people are incarcerated does not mean that they should not have dignity in their health care. They shouldn't be able to have their babies and be alive afterwards, right? We shouldn't see these level of disparities and death happening with people in federal custody, and those are just the federal examples. Then we have the challenges of healthcare providers. But Chelsea, you're a mom. I can imagine that when you found out you were expecting, it was a big choice. Who do you see? Who do you want to be on that birthing team with you? And you took it seriously, most likely, picking your provider, whether it was a midwife or an OB. You picked the healthcare system or the birthing center that you use. Many families don't have that choice. They don't have that choice between OBs or midwives or nurse midwives. They don't have the choice to even pick a doula. They don't have a choice of obtaining a lactation consultant. And then when you get down, drill down, they don't have a choice to pick somebody that shares the same language or cultural background as they do. They don't get to pick somebody who has maybe the same race or ethnicity or religious practices as they have. And so we want every birthing person in this country to have a choice in providers, 
to feel confident in entering into that space. Again, whether it's a hospital or not, at home, a clinic, whatever, entering that space with confidence that they will be heard and listened to and responded to and safe. Because as we know, during COVID, there was an instruction, an explicit instruction that told people to stay out of our healthcare systems. And for birthing people, that meant that their partner, their spouse, their best friend or mom, their doula was not welcome into that delivery room or birthing space with them. And so now they were alone and isolated and fearful, recognizing that even pre-pandemic, the disparities existed. And what did we find out? That there's this combination between COVID infection and being black or brown that yielded significantly more negative birth outcomes. And then to be alone and scared is something that should not be happening in this country. And so we responded really quickly, developing COVID-specific maternal health legislation. And yet, even right now, we don't have a nationwide recommendation around vaccination and treatment for pregnant, postpartum, and lactating people. It's unacceptable. Well, I certainly agree with that. I would also say this, a lot of the progress that we have been making in the maternal health space has happened at the local level. There are many geographically focused groups that are leaders who are trusted voices, and we need to be seeking them out, flooding them with resources, and centering them in these conversations. We have these resources that are small. It might just be a collective of doulas that are vocal and organized and are watching the trends on the ground. But then there's also an opportunity at the health system level for them to be examining their data and making that available more publicly, initiating community conversations based on trends that they're seeing. And, you know, being leaders, being leaders. That's what this is. This is a leadership challenge and there are roles that we can all play. One of the things that I've been really excited about is we have this great convening power in Congress, right? Everything doesn't require a legislative solution. Sometimes you just need to bring folks together around a table and elicit commitments from industry, from local electeds, from you know state and local public health, and then work together in this collaborative way. And I think that we'll be able to move through this COVID recovery, especially in this maternal health space, on the strength of those relationships, those coalitions, and those commitments. I do want to ask about the ways in which we can, I think, be comfortable in asserting with certainty what we know and also being clear about what we don't know. Because I do think, especially when it comes to expectant and new moms, we actually still don't know a lot. And we do need to be candid about that because often pregnant women, new moms, lactating moms are excluded from clinical trials. So how do you, both with your nurse hat on and your congresswoman hat on, Think about asserting with certainty what you and we, the broader public health community, know, and also being honest and forthright about what we don't. You are absolutely right. There's been some challenges around vaccination in general with expectant moms. And so we actually put in the Momnibus the Maternal Vaccination Act that Terry Sewell introduced to do some really focused and targeted public health communication and education campaigns about the safety of just vaccines at large during this important prenatal and postpartum period. And I think that as clinicians, we need to be very clear about the importance of vaccines for mom and baby. 
you know, the conversation around vaccines, I think in this space has always focused on baby, right? And that initial conversation with the pediatricians, keeping the vaccination schedule, making sure that everybody's comfortable, but not about mom's health and well-being. And, and I think that this is an opportunity for us to broaden that conversation and make sure that if there is a need for, you know, remedial education, so to speak, that that we're taking advantage of it, especially while people have health care coverage, right? Because we're talking about sometimes in some states, this is the only opportunity that someone will have health care is during the time that they're pregnant and that postpartum period. Lauren, the last question I want to ask is if you're able to really pass the, and I hope you are, the 12-bill Mommy Omnibus Act, do you think that then is a template for other forms of big, coordinated public health leadership from Congress in other areas of health inequity, especially as it relates to women? I absolutely think it could be a template. One of the things that I think people assume is that Congress works on the most important issues facing our country. That's not not true. Congress works on the issues that members raise. And this is why representation matters. Because if you change who is serving in a body, you're going to get different issues put onto that agenda. And what I have found is as immediately, as soon as we elevated this issue, maternal health, maternal mortality, these disparities, people were excited about the solutions. They wanted to help and be involved. Some people didn't know. Some people had forgotten. Some people didn't know it had gotten this bad. But people care. These issues just need a champion. It's been overwhelming the support around the country from industry, from providers, from clinicians, from moms, from nonprofit space and leaders. We've had leadership outside of government for so long. It just hadn't had a home, hadn't had a hub in government. And so I am very optimistic that we're going to be able to solve a lot of these problems. But I do think that we are going to have to continue to be committed to electing a Congress that looks like the American people. If we continue to count on other people to solve our problems, we're going to be waiting a long time. Well, Lauren, Congresswoman Underwood, you're not my Congresswoman, but I'm very grateful that you're in our Congress. Thank you so much for your time and even more for everything you're doing every day. Thank you for having me and thank you for continuing to speak truth on these issues where we can do better. And I believe that together we will. You can keep up with Congresswoman Underwood on social media at Rep Underwood. Today, we talked about just a few of the ways sexism and gender bias affect health outcomes. We can't solve the public health crisis that is sexism until we name it and shine a light on it. It's why I'm so grateful to Caroline Criado Perez and Congresswoman Underwood for bringing attention to this topic and for calling for the changes we so desperately need. I started this podcast because more people than ever before are talking about public health right now. And I hope that we could use this moment to broaden our understanding of what public health is. Yes, it encompasses things like pandemics, and it also includes vaccines, mental health, gun violence prevention, reproductive rights, environmental justice, climate change, substance use disorders, HIV AIDS, racial justice, and so much more. I'm so grateful to all the guests who have joined me this season to talk about the lessons we can learn from other important moments in public health. And of course, I'm grateful to you, our listeners, for being part of these conversations. So thank you so much for listening. Please keep lifting up the voices of scientists and public health experts. Please look out for one another and please stay safe. In fact, 
is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Erica Goodmanson, Lauren Peterson, Kathy Russo, Julie Subrin, and Justin Wright. With help from the Hidden Light team of Barry Lurie, Sarah Horowitz, Nikki Huggett, Emily Young, and Huma Abedin. With additional support from Lindsay Hoffman. Original music is by Justin Wright. If you liked this episode of In Fact, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And tell your family and friends to do the same. If you really want to help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.